So here we are in First Samuel chapter 26, and in this chapter, and this is this is one of the I think one of the real sad, sad chapters in First uh, Samuel. Uh, David David's uh, challenges, his um, his hardships, they're they're going to continue. And uh, you remember that all of this is taking place in the southern part of Israel. Last, last time we were together, David was operating out of the wil wilderness of Paran. And then you had Maon and Carmel. And these were two cities that played into our story. Now, today, we're actually going to go a little north of there to the town of Ziph. The Ziphites, uh, they're coming back into the picture once again the Ziphites they uh, had narked on David you remember back in chapter 23 and now they're narking on him again and you notice there in verse 1 they that they tell Saul that uh, uh, David is in Hakaliah and so come on down here uh, and get this guy now uh, this is going to end up being the the final meeting and it's a very sad meeting a final the final meeting and the final words between uh, David and Saul. And we really end this chapter on just this sorry note of a guy that could have been so great, a guy that just had so much potential. And again, I think one of the great uh, heartaches in life is wasted potential. And you, you just see somebody that's just set up to just so succeed in life and then they just end up crashing and burning and it's just a heartache when you see that kind of a story. And that, of course, is certainly the story of, of King Saul. And so these, um, these, these trials are going to continue here for, uh, for David. And again, the trials, God doesn't allow these trials to come into our life in order that it would drive us to despair, but rather uh, these trials are, are meant to drive us to God and increase our confidence in God. And, and we know that this took place in David's life because the uh, subtitle of Psalm 54 is a contemplation of David. When the Ziphites went and said to Saul, David, is, is David not hiding uh, with us or among us? And then the prayer begins by saying, save me, O God by your name and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, oh God. So time and time again, David is driven by despair, driven uh, to the Lord. And uh, as he draws near to the Lord, God does his work in David's heart and God miraculously works and wonderful things happen. Well, the same thing's gonna happen here. This is kind of a crazy story. Notice in verse two. Then Saul, he arose after the Ziphites, you know, told him about David. Then Saul arose and he went down to the wilderness of Ziph and having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Now, have you been to the wilderness of Ziph of late? Uh, again, there's not really a whole lot there. Uh, when, when David would say in Psalm 63, I'm dwelling in a dry and thirsty land, He's not being melodramatic. He's being very factual here. And so he's, he's driven into this God-forsaken part of the Judean uh, wilderness. And this speaks, I think, to the intensity of the hatred that Saul has for David for no reason at all. David has not done one harmful thing to Saul, but Saul, in his paranoia, 
has just worked this conspiracy up in his mind that I got to kill David because David is after my kingdom. David is after everything that I have. And the fact that he would track David down in a place like this, I think I'm not going to go to the wilderness of Ziph. If you're my enemy and you end up dwelling in the wilderness of Ziph, Good luck to you. I'm not coming looking for you. I got better things to do. So this speaks of the intense. He wants this guy so badly. He wants this guy dead that he's even going to go searching a place like this out. Now, there's an interesting structure here, an interesting sentence structure that you'll notice. In, in verse, verse 2, we've got, then Saul arose and then to seek David. Now, in verse 1, that the Ziphites, they came to Saul, and then they were saying, is not David among us? And then in verse 3, and Saul encamped, but David stayed in the wilderness. So notice in these first three verses that Saul is mentioned first, and then David second, that Saul is the one initiating the activity. Saul is the one that is in charge. Saul is the pursuer, and David is the pursued. Saul is the hunter, David is the hunted, if you will. But then there's a, then there's a big change. You notice in verse four, that therefore David sent out spies and they understood that, that Saul, so David comes before Saul. And then in verse five, twice we have, so David arose where Saul and David saw and Saul laid. So the Lord is totally turning this around that it would appear as the story begins that David is the one that is in great trouble. But as God answers David's prayer, as God works on behalf of David, it ends up that David is the one who's really in charge and Saul is really the, the victim of all of this. Now, again, in chapter 24, you remember Saul repented. Oh, gee, I'm so sorry. But it becomes very clear it was an emotional response that he had made some kind of an emotional decision. Once again, I think it's very important that when we share Christ with any soul, that we make sure that we don't bring emotion into the equation, that, that you should never try and bring emotion into a decision of whether or not a person is gonna receive Christ. You don't, you don't make promises like, well, if you come to Christ, you know, maybe your spouse will come back. You know, you come to Christ, maybe, maybe the Lord is gonna heal you and these kinds of things, because what, what if those things don't happen? And then that's some kind of a letdown. They'll begin to think, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe God really didn't answer my prayers. So it's very important that we keep this on a very logical, a very reasonable uh, platform when we share Christ. Look, you are at war with God. You were born outside of the kingdom of God. All of us were born as the children of wrath. All have sinned, all have fallen short. But God in his love, God in his mercy has prepared a way. And then Romans 10, if you'll believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you, you shall be saved. And so you're keeping it on a very straightforward, this is where you are at, this is what needs to happen, and we leave emotion out of it because you as, and I both know you make emotional decisions. Those decisions are decisions that's easy to go back on. And so here is Saul in chapter 24. This was a very emotional experience for him. And David, you're going to be king, and oh, I'm so sorry, and I'm not going 
to kill you anymore. And, and now, well, what happened to that promise in chapter 24? He's right, he's right back at it here uh, one, once again. So the Lord totally flips everything around because what is God trying to do with David? In chapter 23, we read that David was afraid because Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horus. So back in chapter 23, in the same area, Saul is after this guy and David is afraid. God is a good father. Our heavenly father is a good father. And one of the things about a good parent is that a good parent knows how to challenge their children in a proper way. If you have a child that is filled with anxiety, if you have a child that is overly fearful, the worst thing that you can do for that child is to lock them up in a safe space, to put them in a situation where they're never challenged, where they never have to deal with their anxiety or their fear. A good parent understands that I've gotta put this child on a gentle slope upward. And we have to bring in these very, uh, these very managed uh, issues of fear and anxiety. And you slowly get them to see that fears can be conquered and anxieties can be conquered. And this is what we find the Lord doing here with David. He's not allowing David to go into a safe space, but he's continuing to bring challenges to him. Look at what is happening on our college campuses today. Look at what is developed within in our culture. That we're finding that we're having fewer and fewer children. And we're having children later and later in, in life. And so as a result, we're only having one or two children. We become these helicopter parents. We never allow any adversity to enter into their life. And now they end up on these college campuses where the minute that they hear any kind of philosophy that's contrary to their held belief, they freak out and they're running for their safe spaces, right? And, and this is a sign that these kids have never been in a situation where they've been challenged in, in any way. And so the Lord, he's not gonna keep us in a cocoon. And the Lord is gonna work in our life and he's gonna take us from challenge to challenge to challenge, always proving himself to be faithful so that we can confidently live out our life, that we know who our creator is, and we know that our creator is gonna be faithful in every season uh, of our life. And so then notice what happens in, in verse five. So David arose and he came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lie. And Abner, the son of Ner, now he's the commander of the army, so he's the, he's the head of the secret service, right? So his job is to protect the king, right? Now Saul, he lay within the camp, and the people encamped round about him. So he's dead center in the middle, right? Because everything is about him. He's a very narcissistic individual. He's right in the middle, and 3,000 guys now uh, are surrounding him. So you're going to you have to be a pretty tough guy to make your way all the way to Saul. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, brother, brother of Joab, saying, who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down uh, with you. Now, what, why, why does he want somebody to go with him? I, you know, does he want just, he's lonely, he just wants somebody to I, Does it really make that big a difference whether it's 3,000 to one or 3,000 to two? 
I mean, if you add one more guy, do you really think that's going to help your chances if these guys wake up out of a, a, a dead sleep? But for whatever reason, he wants somebody uh, to be there with him. Now, uh, you'll notice that Abishai, uh, he immediately uh, signs up for the, this gig. Now, Abishai and Joab, Zeruiah was David's sister. So these two boys are the nephews of David. And these two boys are insane. These two boys, whatever part of your brain tells you you need to be careful, they were born without that part of their brain. And we're going to see Joab. Joab I, I think that Joab is one of the most fascinating characters uh, in all of the Old Testament. And, and both, uh, both of these uh, boys, they were killing machines. And they, would, they were terminators is what they were. And they would sign up for any, they weren't, they literally were not afraid of, of, of anything. And, uh, and so this, one of the boys, one of the brothers immediately signs up and he says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm all uh, for this, uh, let's go. Now, again, this is a suicide mission, if you think about it. Let's go down, let's step over 3,000 sleeping special forces guys and make our way uh, to Saul. Now, notice he doesn't say what his plan is once he gets to Saul, but let's just do it. Abishai is saying, thinking, it sounds exciting. I'm in. Let's, let's go for it. And, uh, and so these two guys now are sneaking into the... Now, they get in to a little bit of an argument. It, this, it, this had to be classic. Here they are. They're standing above Saul and, and Abner. Uh, Saul's got his spear that he's thrown at David on numerous occasions, just stuck there in the ground. He's got his canteen there. And so uh, they're... They're standing there and they're getting into a little debate on what their next move is supposed to be. I like what Arthur Pink said. He said, how easily God can render impotent an entire host of enemies. All the forces of nature are under his immediate control. He can awaken from sleep of death and he can put the living into such a heavy sleep that none uh, can awaken uh, them. And so here they are, they're standing over Saul, and Abishai, uh, well, he just wants to take him out. And again, we would all understand why. It makes perfect sense. This is the enemy. This is a guy that God has uh, turned his back on. This is a man uh, that has rebelled against God. This is a man that has killed how many innocents? We do not know. He is a very, very bad man. He deserves to be taken out, and Abishai rightly sees it that way. But of course, David sees him. No, no, this is the Lord's anointed. God has anointed this guy. Let's, God put him in that position. Let's let God take him out. So notice in verse 8 that Abishai said to David, God has delivered your enemy into your hand this day. Now, therefore, please, oh, please, please, let me strike him at once with the spear right to the earth, and I will not have to strike him a second time. Now, Abishai is offering what we would call plausible deniability. Right? David, look, you become king, 
and then somebody comes up to you later and uh, says, hey, you're only king because you took the guy out. You're going to be able to say, I didn't take him out. Abishai took him out. But notice that David now, David understands that this this is God's anointed. Now, this is, this is one of those situations. You see this a, a lot in life. In fact, we, we see it in various places in the Bible, where you've got two, two people, they're looking at the same set of circumstances, and yet they have two entirely different interpretations and two entirely different ways of, of looking at this. Now, Abishai is saying, God has delivered your enemy on a silver platter. What kind of a fool is not going to take advantage of such an opportunity? David looks at this and says, ah, oh, no, 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 this is a test. This is a test. Am I going to take matters into my own hands or am I going to allow the Lord uh, to fight my uh, battles for him? We see this in the New Testament. You remember the book of Acts? Paul's making his final trip down to Jerusalem Everywhere he and his team with Luke, everywhere they go, every church they stop at, they're being warned of the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Bad things are going are gonna to happen there. Now, the people that were with Paul, they were interpreting it, God is telling us not to go. I'm thinking this is what the Holy Spirit is saying. And Paul, his interpretation of it was, no, it's a test. It's a test. I'm just, I'm not a chicken, and I'm, I'm ready to die for the Lord if that's what it amounts to. And you remember that, that Luke said, we just committed him to the will of God. And that's what you have to do, really, to keep peace in the family, because you're going to have this with, within uh, the Christian community, where you're going to see one thing uh, one way, I'm, I'm going to see it a, another way. We're looking at the same set of circumstances. You've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You've got a Bible. I've got the Holy Spirit. I've got a Bible. But there are these times where you're just kind of bonking heads, and you just realize, Lord, he's a fool but I'm committing him to you, right? And this is what uh, we have to do. And so uh, sometimes, sometimes you, you're gonna have these, these situations. So how then do you know what is the will of God? How, I mean, if, if you're looking and you're seeing it one way and you've got a, a mature brother or sister that sees it another way, well, then how can you discern what is the will of God? Well, you have to ask yourself, if I make this decision, what bearing will it have on the most important relationships that I have in my life? All right, I have this opportunity. I think I need to go right. My friend thinks I need to go left, right? But I'm, I'm gonna go right. But before I go right, I need to ask myself, is this gonna deepen my experience with God? Is this gonna cause me to grow spiritually? Is this gonna have a negative impact on my marriage? Is this gonna have a negative impact on my kids? Is it gonna have a negative impact on my brothers and sisters in Christ? And if the decision is going to damage relationships, then there's a high probability that uh, you're making a wrong decision, right? So, so David, he, he says to him, no, 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 just back off, Abishai. We're not gonna kill him. And, uh, and so he, he, takes, he takes the spear, he takes the, the canteen that belonged to Saul, and they get out of there. And they put a safe distance 
uh, in between them. And so then, then he calls out to Abner. Now again, Abner is the head of the secret service. Abner is the head of the military. His job is to protect the king. So here's David. You can see him. He's on an elevated place, a distance away, yelling down into the valley. Hey, wake up, Abner. 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 Getting, getting Abner's attention there. And he says in verse 16, this thing that you have done is not good. Right? So you can see him. He's waking up rubbing sleepy bugs out of his eyes, whatever. And now all of a sudden you got some maniac a ways away screaming, hey, hey, this is not good. Not only that, as the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Nobody likes having that told to them before they have their coffee, right? And, and because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed. And now see here the king's spear and the jug of water that was by his head. Now that, that had to be a little creepy not, to know that a couple of guys were just sort of standing over you in your sleep, right? Both over Abner as, as well as over King, uh, King Saul, right? Now, I don't believe that this is one of the brightest moves on David's part. And I think probably if David could have gone back, he would have worded this differently because here, here's what's gonna happen in the future. He has offended Abner. He's really gone out of his way to embarrass. He's, he's a general. And now the general has been embarrassed in front of 3,000 uh, of his guys. And I am sure that was a very bitter pill for Abner. Now, eventually, we're, we're going to get to it in chapter 31, uh, where Saul is, is going to be killed. And when Saul is killed, Abner, instead of going to David and saying, hey, we all know that you're the anointed king, and so therefore, I'm, my, my influence over the military, I'm now surrendering to you. Instead of doing that, and I believe that a lot of it had to do with the way that David was handling this situation here, Abner went. Now, there would eventually be peace between David and Abner, but not in the near future, Abner is ticked off at how humiliated this must have made him because he's going to take one of Saul's loser sons and he's going to prop him up as king to keep David uh, from the throne. So I think David was really making a, um, a great, a great mistake. And uh, so again, he, he cries out. You'll notice he's saying, look, what have I done? Again, what have I done? I've done, I've done nothing. He, notice that he calls himself there a flea. I, I mean, what harm have I brought to you for crying out loud? I, I haven't brought any harm to you. What whatsoever? What is your problem? And, uh, and then notice that David said, you're, you're driving me away like a fugitive. I'm, I'm not allowed to worship at the tabernacle or the temple. He's a man of worship. And now because of Saul's actions, it's been a very long time since David has found himself in a worship service at, at the tabernacle. And, and notice now verse 21. Then Saul said, uh, I have sinned, my son David. Return, my son David. For I will harm you uh, no more. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Therefore, this is interesting, I have played the fool and erred 
exceedingly. G. Campbell Morgan said, perhaps this I have played the fool is the briefest and at the same time the most accurate autobiography in existence. And you can probably see, you know, or, or hear him saying this with, with great sorrow in his voice. Oh, I have been such a fool. Now this is not, this is not what you want to be saying about yourself near the end of your life. This is not what you want written on your tombstone. Look, you and I, we've got one life. You got one life. You got so many years, so many months, so many days, so many hours, so many minutes, so many seconds. You only have so many. Now, you don't want to get to the end of that time and look back and realize, what have I allowed my creator uh, to do with my life? Can you imagine a more frightening prospect than to end up on your deathbed and to realize that you have wasted it all? Anton LaVey, Anton LaVey is the author of the Satanic Bible. And he died just a few years ago. On his deathbed, his final words, the last words to leave his mouth, oh my, oh my, what have I done? There is something very wrong. There is something very wrong. Sir Thomas Scott on his deathbed, until this moment, I thought there was neither a God nor a hell. Now I know and feel that there are both, and I am doomed to perdition by the just judgment of the Almighty. Charles IX, who killed the Huguenots. Huguenots were the followers of Calvin and they were living under the French um, Catholic-controlled government there uh, in, in France. And, uh, and he, killed, he killed them just wholesale. On his deathbed, he said, I see the mangled forms of the human Huguenots passing before me. They drop with blood. They're pointing at their open wounds. Oh, that I had spared at least the little infants. What blood I know not where I am. How will all this end? What shall I do? I am lost forever. Oh, I have done wrong. That is not how you want to go out. You want to go out, compare this with Spurgeon. His final words were, I can hear them coming. He sat straight up in his bed and asked, don't you hear them? I can see the chariots. I'm ready to board. Dwight Moody, his final words, can this be death? Why, this is better than living. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. This is my coronation day. What a difference between dying words. And the difference is whether or not you are committed to God's plan for your life. Here is a man that just wouldn't submit. Now notice how this story, it gets so sad here, beginning in verse 25. And then Saul, he said to David, may you be blessed, my son David. You shall both do great things and you shall still prevail. And so David went his way, and Saul returned uh, to his place. Now, as I say, this was the final meeting uh, that we know of between these two. It's the final words that were exchanged. And you know what 
what Saul reminds me of, and I, and I know that all of us know people like this. We don't, we don't have anybody here like this. We all know people like this who, you know, the, when you finally, there are moments where you're able to talk to them in clarity. You know, there, there, there are these people, they've, they've got these layers of stupidity, you know, so many layers of stupidity in, in their life. And, you know, you're, you're trying to kind of dig through all of that and, and you finally, you have a conversation with them when, when some genuineness really begins to shine forth and, and you think to yourself, what potential was there? Oh, what potential. You know, they're, they're charismatic and they're funny and they're energetic and, you know, they never meet a stranger and they're just kind of a natural born leader. And you, you think, oh my, what if they were able to get serious about their relationship with the Lord? If they could just, if they could just get themselves to that place where they would submit themselves to the authority of God, oh my goodness, what could their life become? And that's really what we have with Saul. We see these, we see these little glimpses in Saul, don't we? He's an idiot most of the time. He's just a narcissistic guy most of the time. But then there are those moments where, oh man, I know what God is going to do. And he speaks very profound things. And of course, the whole issue is that God would, but he would not. And so I think that as we go to prayer tonight, we need to be praying that God would be just working on each of our hearts and just bringing us to that place where we would be more submissive and more surrendered to the will of God. And Lord, we would ask that as we leave now that you would just have mercy on us that there would not be a Saul found in our midst. And Lord, if there are any of us that we are just struggling with submitting to what we know you want us to do. Lord, give us grace. Give us an extra measure of favor that we would find the strength to obey you, to do the right thing. Lord, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for your patience. Oh, Lord, we love it that your mercies are just made new every single morning. Lord, where would where would we be if it were not for your mercy and your love? Lord, help us to walk in the power of that. For we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.